You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. If you would open your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter, and this morning we come to the final section in our study of 1 Peter. So I'll be reading 1 Peter chapter 5 and verses 5 through 14. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verses 5 through 14. Uh, Please join me in standing. Young men, in the same way be submissive to those who are older. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Larry Walters uh, was a 33-year-old truck driver uh, living in Los Angeles who always wanted to fly. And that was about all his neighbors knew about him. Uh, An interesting guy who had a desire to want to fly. Well, all that changed when, to their surprise, they turned on the evening news and everyone was talking about Larry Walters. What Larry decided to do was to take his lawn chair uh, to fill up 35 helium weather balloons and attach it to his lawn chair, pack a lunch, bring a BB gun with him, and wanted to see if he would be able to go up into the air on his lawn chair. Well, to Larry's surprise, he not only went a few hundred feet up, he actually went 1,100 feet up into the air and was picked up on LA International Airport's radar. Uh, well, it had a happy ending. He did was enabled to land safely. And once he got on the ground, the press surrounded him and they said, Larry, why did you do it? And his remark was simply, sometimes you just can't sit there. As we come to the end of 1 Peter 5, that is exactly Peter's sentiment to believers. You can't just sit there. There is a call to action directed to each one of us. And so as you make your way to 1 Peter chapter 5, you notice that we left off last week with looking at verses 1 through 4, uh, where Peter had some specific imperatives, commands, to elders, to church leaders. But he shifts his attention 
in the rest of the section here that closes out this epistle to look at what is expected of everyone who's in the congregation. In other words, what is expected of believers? And so he packages this address up with some imperatives, some calls to action. And so you notice verses 5 through 7, there's the fact that we are to be covered in humility, that this is to be characteristic of every Christian. And so notice verse 5 begins, young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. Now the question arises here, what does Peter mean by young men? And there's a couple different directions you can go on this. One is he's specifically targeting young men who possibly would tend to be maybe a little rebellious towards some of the older men in the church. And so he's sort of saying to them, you in particular who are full of energy, who maybe would like to see things changed all the time, uh, pay respect and honor to those who are older than you that may have some greater wisdom and discernment than you. So that is possible. Some feel that the young men is a reference maybe to those who are not elders or in leadership, but, but are kind of potentially headed in that direction. And so there's a word of caution to them. A third view is simply that young men here includes young men and women. Everyone in the congregation should have this attitude of properly recognizing those who are over you in the body of Christ. And if we take it along those third lines, I would say let's expand this to a characteristic that should mark every Christian. Yes, you're leaders, but now as Peter turns as he says, what does God have to say? to the flock, to the sheep. What call of action? Be covered in humility. And even as I say that word, first kind of think in your own minds, how would you define humility? So sometimes it's rendered gentleness. Uh, but when you think of humility, it literally means a lowliness. Uh, not that we put ourselves down. We should, like Paul, boast in Christ, boast in who we are in Christ. But it implies humility is a readiness to serve others. That that should characterize us as Christians and our interaction with one another. Think for a moment once more of the context of this letter. Peter is writing to believers who, who their circumstances are very difficult. They're, they're scattered because of persecution. And that persecution will, will not lessen in the days and months and years to come. It will get greater. And yet he talks to them about being marked, clothed in humility, in a readiness to serve. Serve one another in the body of Christ, but even in your interaction and responses to those leaders in the world that are over you. And we've seen as we come to the conclusion of this study of 1 Peter, how the book and letter is all intended to say to us, this is how a Christian lives in the real world. But you notice that Peter is very particular with, he says, clothe yourselves. Now, now, Paul likes to use this word. He'll speak about putting on, putting off certain things. But this term is unique for Peter to use it here in this particular letter. And the word gives you a, a very interesting picture. It's a picture of a servant or slave as he would put on his apron and tie it 
to get ready to act in their position of being a servant. And so to kind of think, here is a mindset that does not come natural to us. Even as Christians, our, our mind is not focused on the needs of others. We're, we're always automatically focused on our own needs. But as we grow in Christ, there should be a, a maturity that displays itself where more and more we have the mind of Christ, whereby we have a quickness, a readiness to respond to the needs of others. So the first imperative that Peter gives here is be clothed with humility. This, this should characterize us. It it's, it's becomes a part of our fabric and being in Christ. But notice that while the believer is to be serving others, that we can also rest in the sovereignty and providence of God. So why should we be humble? Well, go on in verse 5, and you notice that you have a quotation there, that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Peter appeals to the book of Proverbs, the wisdom book, the book that gives instructions on how to live, and says, this delights God. This pleases God when humility is reflected in his people, our dependence, our trust in him. But then you go on to verse 6, and he repeats, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Now, you could literally read that verse as, Be humbled. In, in other words, <coughs> accept the circumstances and the conditions in your present life because you're resting in the sovereignty and providence of God. Not, not complaining about them, not using them as a springboard to say, well, I'd be a much better Christian if I didn't have to deal with this in my life or this in my life. Look at those circumstances, whether they be physical, spiritual, emotional, and be willing to be humbled by them. To again, rest in God's sovereignty. That God is in complete control. To rest in his providence. That God by his mighty hand will care for you. And attend to every need that you have. Typically in scripture, the, the word hand is a symbol of authority or power. So to know that God's hand is behind all this is very comforting. To know that same hand reaches down to comfort us in Christ Jesus, to strengthen us. So now we begin to get a, a broader picture of what it means to speak of being clothed with humility. But then you go on to verse 7. Again, a very familiar verse probably to many of us. Casting all your care or anxiety on him because he cares for you. Now tucked into this command to be humble is a reminder that as you trust in God, as you cast forth unto him your cares and worries, that is not an excuse for a Christian to be passive. In other words, this is not saying, as Christians, we just should be very passive in everything because, well, God will take care of that. Well, no, we are to be diligent as we humble ourselves and walk in obedience through these circumstances. Or difficulties. Because Peter is clearly calling this congregation not to just sit there and not to just say, well, it's God's plan, so just sort of wait it out. 
But, but in the midst of that, continue to grow. Continue to seek after him. Continue to pour your cares onto him. But don't use that as an excuse for not being spiritually diligent. So that's his first imperative, his first command. But he's not finished yet because he issues a second imperative. And the second imperative is one that he's already repeated twice before in the letter. So if you look back at chapter 1 of 1 Peter and verse 13, there Peter says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Keeping that in mind, go to chapter 4 and verse 7. There he says, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. So the imperative that's already been repeated twice and now stated once more is be self-controlled and alert. Be self-controlled and of a sound mind. And Peter goes on to explain that what does it mean to be sober-minded, to be watchful? And why is that something we need to know? I've been impressed over the past couple months with um, reading some of John Flavel's writing. He's a Puritan theologian, uh, but he talks about a concept that Puritans hammered home with their congregations. The thought of keeping the heart. And what they meant by that is that in Christ, your heart is one to Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit and grace. But then what happens after that in our relationship with the Lord is keeping the heart. Spiritual diligence. Not that we're fearful of losing our salvation, that's not even in question. But, but what are we doing to, as Paul would tell Timothy, to fan that flame into a fire, to develop that heart for God? And so Flavel in one of his writings simply defines keeping the heart like this. It is the diligent and constant use of holy means to preserve the soul from sin and maintain sweet communion with God. And I think that's worth repeating. It's the diligent and constant use of holy means to preserve the soul from sin and maintain sweet communion with God. Those holy means are things like prayer, scripture studies, reading God's word, uh, spiritual conversations that we have with one another, uh, worship, many other spiritual disciplines that are play a part in keeping the heart. And that's exactly what Peter is challenging that congregation to do. The, these churches that are meeting in homes to say, not just cover yourself with humility in Christ, but now what would it mean to say that you need to be self-controlled, a fruit of the Holy Spirit, that you need to be watchful. Why? Why is that so important? Well, you go on to the next couple of verses in verse 8, and you see the necessity of this. He doesn't just say, be self-controlled and alert, but your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So here you have this reminder. Satan is a very worthy adversary. He's not all-powerful. He's not all-knowing. He is not God. He's a created being. 
but he is extremely powerful. And, and Peter does not find it wrong to remind Christians of that. And so you see the necessity of keeping the heart is because we do have this enemy. And as Peter describes him, he says, you know, he's, he's your enemy. He, he's the great accuser. He is the opponent of all in Christ. And not only is he your opponent, but as Peter goes on to say, he is, he is on a constant vigil. He is in continual pursuit of looking for someone to devour. No rest, no break, constantly looking to lead Christians into sin, to bring shame and to mock the character and being of God. And notice his intent is very clear as Peter looks at this. He says his intent is to devour. It, it is to destroy. It is literally to, to swallow up, to consume you. Now, why is Peter a good one to listen to on this issue? Now, you could say every Christian could speak with authority on this, but, but having it come from, from Peter's hand, that you need to be self-controlled and alert. Turn with me to Luke chapter 22, and I want to go back to kind of look at a flashback. Imagine suddenly if this scene were being visualized on TV, suddenly there's a flashback some 30 years earlier. And we see a much younger Peter and a much younger group of the 12 all gathered together. And as you look at Luke 22, verses 19 and 20, kind of give us the scene, the setting. And he, referring to Jesus, took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. I probably don't even need to tell you the setting. You know what it is. Jesus is in this large upper room. He's, he's celebrating and instituting the Lord's Supper on the eve of Passover here. What a, what a powerfully moving, worshipful scene here, gathered with these men that have invested their life in him. But then go to verse 24. Jesus tells them what's going to happen. Verse 24, also a dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be considered the greatest. What a sudden change in, in what seems to happen here. From, from a moment of, of worship and concentration on Christ to the disciples somewhat freaking out here and saying, who, who's going to step in? You know, who, who's going to be the next one to take charge? And probably different personalities seeing this as somewhat of a power struggle. I think I, think I should be the one to step in. And then go down to verses 31 and 32. As this dispute takes place, and, and the kind of the context seems to almost picture that as the others are sort of debating among themselves, Jesus turns to Peter and he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. What a scene 
And right away when you hear this, Simon, Simon. He, he wants Peter to hear this. Because Peter will follow it and be like, well, that's not going to happen. you know. And, and Jesus then goes on and speaks about how Peter will deny him. So when you think of Peter writing some 35 years later saying, you know what, you, you've got to be on guard. You can't not keep your heart. Peter knows what he's talking about. Satan wanted to sift him like wheat, which basically means Satan wanted to, to destroy his faith, destroy his testimony, destroy his integrity and ability to somehow be used as an instrument of God. Let's return to 1 Peter chapter 5. Because Peter has one more imperative that will close out this particular epistle. And so as you return to 1 Peter chapter 5, there is an imperative to be encouraged and stand firm in the faith. No empty pictures of everything in the world is going to change. Nothing like that. But a very clear statement. Be encouraged in the faith. Stand firm in the faith. And so you see that clearly stated in verse 9. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kinds of sufferings. Why should they be encouraged? Why should you, if you've come to church this morning with some kind of burden you're dealing with, some kind of struggle, and probably that would characterize all of us, why should you in any way feel as if you can leave differently? You can leave encouraged in your faith, even though maybe that particular situation has not changed externally. Well, I think you, you get a glimpse of that here when Peter says, remember that what you are experiencing is not unique or unusual. We do have a tendency sometimes to think of what's going on in our life as a Christian as, as somehow extremely unique. But yet Peter says, keep in mind, these struggles, these trials are a part of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. They may take different forms in people's lives, but it's all a part of the Christian life. So notice how he encourages them in verse 9 by saying, your brothers throughout the world are going through these same kinds of sufferings. And the word suffering is, is broad enough to not just include they're literally being persecuted, but it includes any painful, difficult trials that we experience that often are the result of external forces, things beyond our control. And there is something I think we can all identify with when you know you're not alone in a struggle. When you know that others are, in this case, praying for you. When you know you're not isolated. Because the greatest danger is for many in Peter's initial audience to isolate themselves now. Out of fear of greater persecution to come. Out of the fact that they're already hurting and vulnerable, to, to just withdraw even more. So Peter says, you can stand firm in the faith by the reminder, you, you are not alone in this. 
But then go on to verses 12 and 13, and he continues that same theme, where in his final greetings, he mentions Silas, a faithful brother. This is Silas who accompanied Paul on his mission trips. Uh, in other words, let me, let me pull in some other believers here who are faithful brothers, uh, who they have struggles of their own and hardships they've faced because of their obedience to Christ. Notice then he includes in verse 13, she who is in Babylon, chosen together with you. Now you have a clue because in the beginning of the letter, Peter talks about how all in Christ have been chosen. So he clearly is referring to other believers, but what does he mean by Babylon? And I'm under the impression that what he means by Babylon is basically a code word for the believers in Rome. Uh, that he's chosen to use that term, one, out of, in a sense, to help protect them somewhat from the increased persecution to come. It's a fitting title when you think of later in Revelation. Babylon, again, is a symbol of all those who have opposed God's kingdom from the very beginning. So he's reminding them, you're not alone. There's, there's Silas. There, there's these other believers in other parts surrounding you who are seeking to stand firm in the faith uh, to the highest cost. And then notice he also mentions Mark. My son, Mark. Now, Paul's not referring to any biological child that he has. Uh, this would be John Mark. Uh, most likely, Paul, Peter here is referring to the fact that he has uh, and somehow maybe helped mentor John Mark in the faith. Uh, remember, this is the same Mark who very early on when Paul set out on a missionary trip um, left that trip abruptly. If you think of a disappointment and, and yet later Paul will speak of him and say, make sure you, you send John Mark. So you have another account of someone who has faced trials and, and fallen but yet been restored and is example of one who stands firm in the faith. What an encouragement to put a face on that concept. And I would say that would be good even for you and for me to do. Put a face on someone who, who shows you what it means to stand firm in the faith, to grow in Christ in the midst of trials. And because of those trials, they grow in faith. Verse 14, he refers again to encouragement of our brothers and sisters in Christ. When he says, greet one another with a kiss of love, uh, and this is an acceptable form of affection that was evident in the early church. Yeah, you know, that could be the equivalent today of a hug. It could be the equivalent of a handshake. I don't know, fist bump. Uh, whatever it is, something that shows that, that we are concerned about each other. We love each other. Peter says, that will encourage you as you have to do one of the hardest things, and that is to stand firm in the faith. But if you're going to stand firm in the faith, this isn't, again, just sort of a psych yourself up to do this, but you do it by clinging to the promises of God. And so you see in verse 10, and then again in verse 11, verse 10 has a series of four verbs, and they're all future tense. And, and it's, the stage is set when he says, you're, you're looking forward to an eternal glory 
But right now, you're suffering for a little while. So just kind of contrast that. Eternal glory, you're suffering for, for a little while, a short while in perspective. But then the four verbs he mentions here is God has promised you. He's given you his word. He will restore you. He will make you strong. He will make you firm. He will make you steadfast. And so it is those promises of God that we cling to that empower us to, to resist this powerful enemy and to stand firm in the faith. And what a way to, to kind of close it in verse 11 when he says, you know, peace be to all of you, or excuse me, in verse 11, to him be the power forever and ever. Amen. What a reminder to Peter's audience in a world where it looked like at times everyone else was holding power and all authority. Peter says that that does not even compare to the power of God who has made these promises to you. Obviously, we could question the wisdom of Larry Walters and what he did, but there's one thing he can teach us, and that is you can't just sit there sometimes. And the call for every Christian, as we find ourselves living in a difficult world, is to grab hold of these clear calls to action that relate to you and to me in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we realize in our own strength how far short we fall of these. But yet we must respond in the fact that we have been declared righteous in your sight through what Christ has done. That you have given us a new heart, a new spirit, and so what Peter has said to these believers in the first century is the same message that we need to hear today in the 21st century. May we leave these things out this coming week for your honor and for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.